0: I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. Michael Levin. He's a distinguished professor of biology at Tufts University, where he researches a wide array of topics ranging from learning and memory to regrowing limbs in animals. Mike, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast.
1: Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: So what is the central theme that connects all of your research? Because at first glance, these things, these cognitive things, and then looking at like limb regeneration and biomechanics are very different.
1: Yeah. Um, so so we do a lot of things in our lab, including some work in AI and cancer and synthetic uh, uh, living organisms. Oh, even uh, more
0: breadth than I alluded yeah. to. Yeah.
1: <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Many, many things. Uh, but but there is a central theme that ties it all together. So, so these are all facets of one question, really. So what I'm interested in is embodied mind. I'm interested in how uh, various diverse, and, and I'm talking about highly diverse, uh substrates can put forth uh, some degree of intelligence competency cognition and so on so we're interested in mind um embodied in 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 very uh very different um architectures so we work in slime molds and cells and tissues and organs and uh whole whole colonies for example ant colonies and things like
0: mm-hmm. that and, yeah these are and all when- things you might not ordinarily consider having minds at least the, the average person who's not doing this type of research
1: yeah um and so and so if 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 one takes the position that some things have minds and other things don't have minds then one has to uh really specify what the what the what the binary criteria are so so i don't i don't believe in a binary criterion i have been working on a system of um and certainly i'm not the first uh, a system of a continuum of of, uh, of of agency and the idea is to be able to specify. Uh, what kind of problem spaces different systems work in, and what competencies they have to solve problems in those problem spaces. And this, once you think of it that way, it it does a couple of things. It um, uh, sort of dissolves a bunch of uh, pseudo problems that, that people get hung up on all the time. but also it uh, provides very specific research agendas. So So for example, in thinking about morphogenesis as a as a collective intelligence of cells trying to navigate uh, morphospace. space, so the space of possible anatomical configurations and what morphogenesis let's say during embryonic development or during regeneration what it does is it tries to navigate from from one spot where it begins to a target morphology a region of morphospace that is appropriate to, to the whatever shape it's trying to build <clears throat> so so looking at that as a as a um as a kind of collective intelligence that has goals and various competencies to get there opens up a whole new research program because then you are not limited to trying to manage morphogenesis bottom up by by uh, manipulating the hardware of the system but you're you you start to get you start to ask computational questions what does it know what does it measure uh how does it know where it's going could we train it could we use the various tools of neuroscience to uh to manipulate uh its competencies um are there are there uh, stress minimization is there active inference all of these things and these so these become research um, research programs
0: so In morphogenesis that is the process by which cells decide what to become like become a limb or a head or whatever.
1: Well uh, to be specific uh it, it's it's first of all it's not just individual cells it's collectives. So mm-hmm. so no individual cell knows how many fingers you have or what a finger is but the but the collective certainly does. And it's uh it's not only it's not only the the initial step which is making decisions of how to become specific shapes you know for different organs the whole body plan but actually, the decisions it makes after that to uh, to to defend that shape against uh, injuries, accidents, uh, aging, cancer, and so on. So there are there we, are many
0: examples of that. Even if there aren't any binaries here, I, I imagine there's a massive switch when you go from like a single celled organism to multicellular in in terms of complexity and what happens there. So what is that? What does that shift look like?
1: Yeah, I, what one, there are many ways to think about that shift. And so some people think about it as, as a shift of evolutionary individuality and various other things. Uh, one lens that I find useful is um, to look at uh, shifts in terms of uh, the, the intelligence. And what I mean by intelligence is a kind of uh, William James's definition, which is <clears throat> the ability to reach the same goal by different means. So basically comp- problem solving competencies. And so, what happens uh, with uh, in, in going from individual cells to multicellular structures is is two things. One is a change in in the problem space in which it works. So, single cells solve problems in metabolic spaces, in transcriptional spaces, and so on. But collectives of cells can solve problems in anatomical morphospace, space, meaning that they can, make, they can work together towards a goal that's uh, making an organ or making a, a body structure. Um, and of course, there are other spaces after that. So there's the three-dimensional space of conventional behavior. There are linguistic spaces and so on. And so one thing that happens is that, that the system becomes incapable of, 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 of uh, having goals in other problem spaces but also it enlarges what I call the cognitive light cone. So the cognitive light cone is basically a kind of diagram that uh, tries to uh, semi-quantitatively map out the size of goals that it can work towards. So so if you think about... So, so all creatures, including evolved um, um, natural uh, synthetic beings, all, all kinds of creatures, one of the things that ties them all together is... Having a particular shape of a cognitive light cone, which is how, what 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 is the size, of, l- literally the spatiotemporal size of the goals that it can work towards. And so, so the thing that happens during multicellularity and then and then collapses during uh, disorders such as cancer is the size is the, this inflation of the cognitive light cone. The goals that it can produce become much bigger and more complex.
0: When people talk about the goals of an organism, especially from an evolutionary perspective, some take it very literally, like the organism always has its own drive to survive and reproduce and others treat it as this sort of passive process like goal is just a metaphor for the process that evolution naturally unfolds how much intentionality do you attribute to to animals a- across this complexity spectrum
1: yeah well i, I let's 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 uh, dissect that in a couple of ways so 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 first of all <laughs> i take not only individual animals as having goals but lots of their components do. So so your various organs have goals, your your individual cells have goals. The molecular networks inside those cells have specific goals in, diff- in various spaces. We, we as humans are terrible at recognizing intelligent goal-directed behavior in unconventional spaces. We're very good at noticing, uh, you know, medium-sized objects moving at medium speeds and achieving um, goals in, in three-dimensional behavioral space. But if you, for example, had, um, an inborn, uh, so kind of an innate sense of your, your blood chemistry, you would be very quick to be able to recognize your liver and your kidneys and so on as solving really interesting problems in physiological space. And, and so, so we need to be really humble about, uh, about, um, being able to detect these things. I take, um, you know, how seriously do we take these metaphors? I mean, the first thing I want to say is that all, all science is the construction of metaphor. We have nothing. So people will say, wow, that's just a metaphor. That's all we have. There's nothing else. Everything mm-hmm. is a metaphor. And so, if you want to talk about human goals, of course, there will there are people who will say that well, humans don't have goals either. They just have you know they 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 they're complex uh, uh, kinds of uh, kinds of uh, systems that respond to specific stimuli, and then then whatever happens happens. So so I take I take goal talk very seriously. Uh, I think that um, goals go- goal directedness is an incredibly powerful. Uh, metaphor because it helps you make predictions, it helps you do new science, and it helps you reach new capabilities. Which means that uh, in order to make uh, claims about goals, you can't just sort of sit back in your armchair and say, "Thermostats don't have goals. I, I have goals." You know, these are you, you, you can't uh, make these philosophical pronouncements. You have to do experiments. So what that means is you have to specify a problem space. You have to specify what you think the goal is, and then you have to make a hypothesis about how much. Uh, competency does the system have to reach that goal and then you do an experiment and then we find out if your set of hypotheses was useful or not and so these are all empirical questions and i uh you know for us in uh (laughs) <laughs> making uh goal centered models of regeneration of development of various things like that we've reached lots of new capabilities that no one had done before and that uh, you know new 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 discoveries new research programs so I take I take that to be uh, exactly what metaphors and science are supposed to do so I, I take it
0: very seriously When you're developing a plan of research how do you decide what animal to use ranging from like a very small planarian up to a frog or whatever other uh, level of complexity.
1: Yeah, I mean, we go way broader than that, in that uh, we not only go down well past plenary into cells and bacteria, but we also think about synthetic forms uh, in silico uh, forms. Um, you know, uh, there's a very wide range of possible model systems in which to study this stuff. I mean, and the criteria are, you want to balance, you you, you want an example that, you want, you want something that really illustrates very well the phenomenon you want to study. But you also need it to be tractable, so it needs to be something that um, current uh, or or adjacent possible uh, tools will allow you to uh, to really to really uh, make a, make a dent in the, the understanding thereof. So that's how that's you know so so all these different model systems are good for different things. Um, in silico models are really good because you control exactly which aspects you want to include and which aspects you want to ignore. So that's, that's very useful. And also they're very fast. And so you can do, you know, millions of generations uh, in a, in a simulation that you couldn't do in real life. Um, Planaria are very good to understand natural mechanisms of regeneration, for example, but one thing you can't do in planaria is practice new regenerative therapies because they're already so good at it. There's nothing to improve. They just, I mean, they're, they're perfect regenerators. So for that, we usually start with something like frog, which has uh a limited regenerative capacity. it has tissue renewal the way that humans do uh, but as an adult, it has very limited regenerative capacity, so we try to improve that and then for human relevance, you might go to human cells and culture or you might go to organoids or mouse or or something like that, so you know you want you want a tractable model of whatever
0: you're studying. Where did your research start, and how did it evolve?
1: Wow, uh. Yeah, that, I guess that depends how far back you want
0: to go. So we can talking, go back as far as you like.
1: Well, I guess, I guess, I mean, I, I've been interested in this stuff since I was a kid. So, so, so very young, uh, I was really interested in uh, engineering and the understanding of uh, electronic artifacts like televisions and and how it was that. I mean, we're talking, I don't know, five, six, seven years old. I would I would look into the back of a television set and just be uh, just amazed that somebody knew how to put all those parts together to make it work the correct way. But at the same time, um, you know, you, you I would go outside and look at look at beetles and and um, caterpillars and, and and various insects, and think about what the commonalities and differences were. So these things also made of parts. Uh, how did they get here? Um, how is it that they seem to have preferences and uh, and behavioral repertoires that our machinery doesn't have, doesn't have? And what's the you know what's the commonality there?
0: You think there's um, something about relative simplicity, like talk. I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about like an old school boxy television, which you could actually take apart and maybe get a sense at how it's working. And nowadays, like you just have a very compact screen, you can't take apart at all. And I imagine in biology, it's it's somewhat similar, right? Like, you might think that uh, the smaller the animal, the simpler it is. But then also, it's like, once as you can, you can look at a human, and then kind of just at at a more macro scale, look at the limbs and what they're thinking and saying and kind of get a broad idea of what's going on, even if you know nothing about the cellular biology. But then the smaller you go, it seems like the more you need that cellular biology knowledge in in order to get a sense of what's going on. Do you see a parallel there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's all in the eye of the observer and what kind of questions you're asking. I mean, I don't think there really is any simplicity in biology anywhere. I think we impose certain kinds of simplicity when we as scientists make decisions about what we're going to ignore and what we're going to try to focus on, which is essential, right? The kind of the whole point of science is to be able to say something without having to say everything. And, uh, you know, when, when people say simple organisms, I mean, you know, look, you're, you, you know, yes, you're not going to study, um, uh, complex psychological drives and, and social, uh, behavior, you know, some societies in, in planaria, but, uh, so, so of course, so of course there are ways in which they're simpler, but, um, all of the real uh, mysteries of what it means to build a body to repair a body to have a uh, a self that's more than the sum of its individual cells all of that is was solved long before planaria came on the scene so 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 mm-hmm. for the for the wide range of problems that we're really interested in planaria are no less complex than than any other organism i mean they they they're incredibly complex if we understood planaria we would be done with a lot of uh, science, certainly a lot of the biomedicine that, uh, that we need. Um, I don't consider them simple. Um,
0: we simple should, we all. should introduce to our audience, um, what planaria are, and then re- we can return to your, to your story.
1: No, sure. Um, yeah. Planaria are a kind of a free living flatworm. Um, they, uh, have a brain, they have various organs. They are similar to our ancestors. So they have true bilateral symmetry. Uh, they are amazing in many different ways. Uh, one of them being that they, um, uh, they can be cut into pieces. Uh, I think the record is something like two hundred and seventy-five pieces. Every piece will regenerate a perfect little worm. So every piece knows exactly what a worm looks like and will rebuild uh, all the missing structures. They seem to be immortal. There doesn't appear to be anything like an old planarian. They sort of don't age at the individual level. Wow. Um, they uh, they're smart, so you can train them. And if you do train them for specific memories, uh, and then cut off their brain, cut off their head, including their brain. The tail will sit there for eight or nine days doing nothing. They will regrow a new brain and then show evidence that they still remember the original information. So they have this kind of distributed memory storage and the ability to um, uh, uh, imprint those memories back onto the newly developing brain. Um, they have um, they have very other, very various other uh, interesting features. They they're they're very cancer resistant, but if the, if you if you do induce induce a tumor. And then you trigger regeneration elsewhere in the body. The tumor tends to get cleared up. So they they have this this amazing uh, sort of remodeling uh, kind of um, kind of capacity. area that are starved will simply shrink allometrically. So they they shrink in perfect proportion. And then you feed them, and then they grow in perfect proportion. Um, and then and then the final thing, which which bears um, bears in interesting ways on this whole question of genomes and, and what genomes do, they they have an incredibly messy genome. Uh, because they tend to reproduce by cutting themselves by by splitting in half and then regenerating, so this means that they uh, they 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 uh, accumulate somatic mutations and they can be mixoploid, so every cell could have a different number of chromosomes. They're they're a total mess genetically, and yet mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're they're champion regenerators, that, you know, with 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 really excellent solid anatomical control. So that, that's, that's kind of an interesting puzzle that we
0: can, we can talk about. Is there more variety in their genome compared to, uh, an organism of similar size?
1: What, what do you mean by variety?
0: Um, in, in terms of the mess you were just talking about.
1: Oh yeah. 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 I mean, they could be right. Uh, yeah, they could, like I said, they could be mixed deployed, So cells, cells could have different numbers of chromosomes all in the same, uh, all in the same
0: animal. And that's you know? not typical.
1: No, that's, well, it's typical of tumors, uh, but it's uh-huh. definitely not typical for, uh, for, for normal, you know, normal cells in your organism, they all have the same, uh, uh-huh. almost all of them have the same uh, genetic complement.
0: Interesting. Okay, we, we should return to this topic, but I, I, I want to let you finish your, your, you're starting in your childhood, and then talking about how you first became interested in these topics. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so 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 I was interested in this issue of of life and engineering, and I thought that uh, I was primarily I was interested in mind and these questions of where do things like I mean clearly we're all made of some kind of parts, but somehow we acquire uh, we acquire preferences and goals and uh, and and um, uh, memories and and the various uh, cognitive capacities and a first person inner perspective and things like that so i thought that uh i was uh, i was a coder from an early age i programmed and i thought that uh really the way to understand these things is to try to is to try to build new ones from scratch so artificial life artificial intelligence and so i went uh i went as an undergrad i went for a computer science degree uh i then sort of halfway through realized that uh we just didn't know enough to do this without the biology and so i also got a biology undergrad degree and then from there um went to uh, went to grad school and at that point i was uh i was studying uh left right asymmetry during embryogenesis how how the different uh, organs figure out which side is left and which side is right and that that's 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 a very interesting problem because it gets to this kind of collective decision making so so to figure out uh which which whether you're on the right or the left side of a midline is a collective decision problem that requires uh some kind of um emergent a whole to exist so there's got to be a, mid- a midline and there's got to be this this large scale uh geometric uh, kind of uh, kind of information that that cells need to make decisions based on and so i worked on that and then as a as a postdoc uh i sort of pushed that backwards from the genetics of it to the biophysics of it because of course genes can't tell left from right so there's a there's a physical there's a there's a biophysical uh phenomenon at the root of it and so i studied that and then and then uh, in 2000, I started my own lab. Um, So this was at the Forsyth Institute on the Harvard Medical School campus. And um, I, uh, at that point, we started. uh, I, we we had made some of the first, uh, for the some of the first um, molecular tools to read and write. The electrical information that the groups of cells are using to store pattern memories and so this is bioelectric this is developmental bioelectricity which of course people had been working on for for a really long time but we had made some of the first molecular tools and so for at that point my lab began uh studying and developing these um uh these methods to uh literally read and write the cognitive medium of cells to, to, to look at a set of tissues and say, okay, what is the information that they're processing? It's very parallel to what neuroscientists are doing in the brain. But this actually happens in every, every, every tissue in your body. Mm-hmm. So we studied, and, and so we started applying that to different, to different, uh, scenarios. So regeneration, uh, birth defects, uh, cancer. Um, and so then I moved to Tufts in 2009, uh, moved the whole the whole group over to Tufts in 2009 and then we continue all of that work and then added a bunch of stuff uh using computational using computational models um, synthetic biology so so create a synthetic morphology so creating novel um novel living organisms um and that's kind of that's kind of the evolution of it but basically working up from the molecular and biophysical mechanisms of of, of, uh, cell communication to really try and understand first the computations and then the cognitive aspects of those computations to understand decision-making and in these other spaces.
0: Was it, uh, gradually working your way down in, in realizing, let's say the complexity of intelligence that first, first maybe starting in artificial intelligence. If, if you had this computer science background and then realizing we need to understand the biology to understand intelligence, and then perhaps going towards animals and re- realizing we need to understand cells to understand animals. And then we need to understand the molecular biology to understand the cells. Is that what happened?
1: No, it's, it's actually, it's actually the other way around. It's, uh, <clears throat> this, this can continue working upwards actually, because I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very obvious to to everyone that, uh, understanding molecular networks and cells and tissues is important, but the vast majority of People, I think, to this day, see it in a very bottom-up fashion. In other words, that uh, if we, you know, that, that that the best way to interact with these things is is a, is a, in a kind of um, a reductionist approach, where where we focus on the hardware. So, so look at all of molecular medicine, right? It's it's all focused on on the hardware. It's a single molecule mm-hmm. uh, kinds of approaches, genome editing, CRISPR. This is all this is all hardware. And with you know, from my computer science background, I always thought that. You know, the hardware is great, but look at how much uh power you get if you were able to understand the software and program uh and take advantage of the reprogrammability of, of these things at the software level. And so so working up from the molecular mechanisms of what's going underneath to then ask bigger questions as, yeah, but what, what are the computations? What's the system, what what's the information processing that the system is doing? And then working up from that, and saying beyond computation, there are there are cognitive aspects here. So what does the system know? What does it expect? What does it remember? What does it measure? Um, and how do we communicate with it? And how do we relate to it? So sort of working upwards from the from the uh, from the m- m- physical details of the machine to the computations to finally the sort of aspects of of intelligence and cognition that I'm really interested
0: in. Could you describe what the computational research that you're doing is and how that complements the biology?
1: Yeah. So, so, so we have a, a variety of, of computational approaches. Um, one set is, uh, to make, to, to construct relatively, uh, biorealistic models of cellular signaling to, to really look at mechanisms by which, for example, a whole tissue can decide whether the pattern is correct. Right? So so a, so a planarian or a salamander is able to regenerate um, missing structures. And so for that, you need to understand how do cells know whether they've hit the correct pattern or not? When do they stop? What should they build? So making computational models of the bioelectric communication in, in cellular networks, using some tools of, of uh, connectionist and machine learning and, and other, um, other kinds of uh, paradigms to try to understand how do collectives make decisions in morphospace. space how do they navigate and so so these are computational models of of, of morphogenesis and those is that models, where
0: cancer comes in where if the the signal that you're done doesn't kick in properly then the cells just go out of control and keep multiplying um no cancer is well it's
1: related to that but, but cancer is a slightly different story so 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 i think that uh what happens in cancer is, a, is, a, is a, uh, a reduction of the cognitive light cone. So basically what that means is when you have a collection of cells and they're all in very particular electrical communication with each other as a network, that network can store large-scale pattern memories and, and work towards implementing a heart or a, an eye or a liver or whatever it's, it's, it's making. Individual cells that become disconnected from that electrical network they're not any more selfish than the other cells. It's just that their cells are smaller. They're tiny. They 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 are no longer connected electrically to this other network. And so all the goals that they're able to pursue are single cell scale goals. And what do individual cells want? Every cell wants to become two cells and they want to go where life is good. And that's a metastasis and over-proliferation of cancer. So in cancer, that that, that large cognitive light cone um, shrinks down because of the, uh, the breakdown of the electrical communication. And then the cells basically revert back to their ancient unicellular lifestyle that that border between self and external environment the individual cancer cells basically see the rest of the body as just external environment they're just amoebas living in a in a in a a wide world at that point and so so of course they're behaving in ways that are maladaptive for um, the rest of the organism yeah what
0: what is the incentive for the organism to like narrow and specialize the cells as opposed to throughout the entire lifespan, having everything be a stem cell that has that flexibility to become whatever it needs?
1: Um, well, the, so, so there's a couple of things. I mean, becoming everything it needs, let's remember what indi- what stem cells are able to do. So, so individual stem cells can become other cell types, mm-hmm. but that's not really enough. So your hand and your foot have exactly the same cell types but the, you know, so they have bone and skin and muscle and then, you know, whatever the other tissues are, but they're, but they're different. So, mm-hmm. so having stem cells become individual st- cell types is not sufficient. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient.
0: So, so that's like a hardware software question. The hardware is the same, but they're operating on different software.
1: Uh, basically. I mean, in general, what happens is that the genome provides the cellular hardware. So the genome tells every cell what tiny uh, components it gets to have. So all the proteins, but then after that, cells need to interact and form networks. In ways that make decisions at the physiological level. So those decisions, uh, right from the beginning, when, when, when the, uh, a, a bunch of embryonic blastomers get together and become an embryo, you know, what's, what's an embryo, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a set of cells that are pursuing specific paths through anatomical morphous space and, uh, together as a, as a collective. And so, um, specializing uh and again this is this isn't exactly my field but 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 people who study um, evolution the evolution of specialization uh we have many many stories about why it why it pays to have cells with specific functions in your body
0: right it's a mm-hmm.
1: um yeah it's a, it's a highly adaptive architecture you,
0: you mentioned embryonic development that's another topic that typically gets this sort of binary maybe false binary placed on it like at what point does the embryo become human or become whatever organism it's becoming um uh, i'm guessing you see it as more of a natural continuum could you shed some light on that
1: yeah yeah i mean these these issues of when does something become are universally uh, pernicious meaning that uh, they provide no value other than no value at all and and they generate all kinds of pseudo problems because trying to find a bright line at, at which on, on day x of development you are now conscious or you are now a human or you are now a cognitive whatever there's never been a good story about that ever mm-hmm. right so people make it up people people will make arbitrary lines and i you know and if for <clears throat> specific um reasons of medical ethics and whatever sometimes you, you you pick a line just you know the way that it it's a little bit like uh when i when i talk my, to my students it's it has the same status as the word adult Right, so so in society we we have this notion of an adult because and, and at eighteen you become an adult and then various other things will happen in court and and so on, but we all know nothing special happens on your eighteenth birthday. It's a total fiction. It's a it's a it's a it's a complete fiction that's designed to lubricate the, the practicalities of of social life. There's, the the same thing here. You can you can draw lines for, for for various regulatory issues if you want, but they don't exist. There's no there's never been any convincing. Uh, sharp mechanism where boom you go from from here to there. I mean, just think about uh what a what an incredibly slow and gradual process development is. There's stuff happening all the time. It's it's impossible to pick any one special time frame where where something discrete happens. And the same thing with evolution. You know, when people say the human, they I guess they typically mean a modern adult human. But if you sort of walk it back, right, a generation by generation, you get to our various hominid ancestors, and then very slowly to various other things that are kind of lower primates, and and so mm-hmm. on. And there's there's just no sharp line, you know. If you wanted to say, mm-hmm. well, well, you know, humans have have um, you know, uh, I don't know, pick something, uh, true uh, true responsibility for their actions, and then and animals don't. I mean, that binary category completely dissolves when you try when 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 you take evolution seriously. You sort of walk it back, and you say well, you're telling me that at some point there were some hominid and there were some, some mammals that didn't have it. And then these parents, boom, they had an offspring and now it has it. I mean, that, that, that's,
0: mm-hmm. it just completely implausible. So, so yeah, Here's it, something that might have a, a sharper line. At what point do you call something living?
1: Yeah. Um, that may have a sharper line. I, there are people who study that question. So, so people like uh, Lee Cronin and Sarah Walker and the folks like that. Um, i i don't know i i don't work on that and frankly um i i don't find the category living i don't find that a particularly interest i mean, I mean this is crazy for a biologist to say i know that but 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 i don't i don't find that a that, that a particularly um important uh distinction
0: so and i don't mean just uh at across development but i mean like at a at an organism level like at, yeah. at what level of complexity or
1: I mean, well, so 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 you know, the, the, certainly certainly every part of development is living. So eggs are living. Uh, you know, the single mm-hmm. cell egg is living. Uh, the way the way people do think about this is at the in terms of the origin of life. So at one, mm-hmm. one point you had an abiotic earth with with what they call just chemistry, and then eventually you have life. So okay, mm-hmm. there are there are the, the, like the folks I mentioned who work on specific criteria for what it means for a planet to have life on it. Uh, and that's, and that's, and that's fine. Um, I don't work in that field. I'm, I'm much more interested. I'm, I'm less interested in the Venn diagram of the things of living and non-living and much more interested in cognitive. So I think that mm-hmm. there are many systems that are cognitive, but non-living there, uh, at this point, there are probably no systems that are living and non-cognitive, but, um, maybe there were, uh, at the beginning of life. Um, uh, but yeah, I'm much more interested in this, in the spectrum of, uh, of uh of, of cognition i'm not i'm not sure what to say about um wh- whether where the life is is continuous or not
0: what is um cognitive but non-living look like so so let's let's uh take a step back and uh
1: just think about uh what what i mean by cognitive so when i say cognitive i mean the spectrum of diverse competencies, including extremely primitive ones. I mean, at some point, anything has to have kind of a, a basement, the lower lower end. Uh, it, all, all of these competencies to solve specific problems. So uh, it has. there's a couple of ways to think about it. One way to think about it, and this is a great um, a line that I, I wish I could remember who said this, but some, someone once said, it's the difference between two magnets trying to get together and Romeo and Juliet trying to get together. What the difference so what's the difference the difference is in what degree of competency do you expect in that in that process so the two magnets are basically just minimizing their distance if there's a barrier that you know they're going to stand there you know pressed up against the barrier that's the end you're not you' not going to get an awful lot of it's it's not zero competency they can do something but but it's awfully low whereas from Romeo and Juliet you can expect very sophisticated uh, kinds of behavioral actions in their problem space to try and get their goals accomplished, and then everything in between. Right? We have all kinds of systems systems in between. So it's the same as that light cone metaphor. It's related to that, right? So so the light cone measures the size of goals you can achieve. So so let's just let's just talk about that for a second. Um, if if the large if if you tell me what the largest goal that you care about is. I can basically guess your your intellectual sophistication. So if you tell me that all you care about is the local sugar concentration, you're probably a bacterium, right? If you tell me that you're capable of um, uh, caring about uh, what happens uh, in the next uh, you know, a couple of days, but you really can't uh, you really don't have the cognitive wherewithal to care about what happens three months from now in the next town over, you might be a dog. You might be something at that level, right? Where where you have a degree of concern over a spatio-temporal area that that has a particular radius, but let's face it, you're never going to care about what's going to happen next year. It's just not possible for you to care about what happens next year, let's say. If you tell me that uh, you you your goal is a world peace or something that, or the stability of the stock markets across the earth over the next hundred years, I'm going to say you're at least a human. And if you tell me that uh, you are capable of caring in the linear range about thousands, millions, or trillions of living beings across uh, the planet, I'm going to say you are something that's beyond current humans, because current humans can't do that. They don't have the the cognitive capacity to care in the linear range about, about that uh-huh. many other beings.
0: When you say nonlinear, does that mean it's like one life is a tragedy, a thousand is a statistic, like we start yeah. to just clump things together?
1: Yeah, basically, right? So, so, so human beings simply do, the standard modern human beings simply do not have uh, the, the cognitive capacity to exert, to, to multiply the amount of care that they would, uh, be able to muster for, for one person or a small number of people over to a large, uh, just as a, just as, just as an example. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so the cognitive light cone, uh, measures, uh, the size of your goals, the, um, what I call the spectrum of persuadability measures the sophistication with which you are able to pursue those goals. So, You can imagine the spectrum where on the left are extremely simple things like mechanical clocks in order to change what they do. So so in order to change what that does, you have to rewire the hardware. You're not going to train it. You're not going to convince it. There's nothing to do except rewire the hardware. So you have things like that. Then you have slightly more interesting things like thermostats. So thermostats are cool because they have a set point and they try to maintain that set point. And in order to change what they do, you don't actually need to rewire the hardware. You can leave the hardware in place, but you can change the set point. And then you may have slightly more sophisticated beings that, yeah, they have a set point, but they also resist it when you mess with their set point. So they have this kind of like very weak metacognitive capacity where they know when somebody is trying to change the set point and they fight you on it. And so then, then, then of course, uh, this, so this is a very dense spectrum, but there are many, you know, another interesting position is uh, creatures that can be trained with rewards and punishments. So you can't do that to a thermostat, but there are lots of other um, kind of reinforcement learning uh, types of agents and living things that you can you can uh, train into new behaviors with rewards and punishments. And then further to the right on that spectrum are other beings whose uh, behavior you can change with uh, communication, with messages, with with rational reasons as opposed to causes. And so and so this 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 whole this whole this whole spectrum. And so you need to uh, you know. Different different beings land in different places on this on the spectrum. And so to go back to your original question, what does cognitive but non-living look like? I can I can easily imagine in fact we already have uh, engineered creatures that you wouldn't say are living. With this, and this is why I'm not particularly interested in living as a, as a distinction. Uh, there are lots of creatures that you probably wouldn't say are living, which are somewhere on this, in, 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 so, so occupy some interesting place on this continuum. So they can either learn, they have goal-directed activity, maybe they have some uh, some open-ended ability to set their own goals. I mean, we're still sort of working up to that in, in, um, in AI. But um, yeah, there's nothing, I don't believe there's anything magical about the protoplasm. There's nothing magical about um, the stuff that we're made of. And no doubt in the wide universe, there are other cognitive beings that don't look anything like us. Whether you want to call them living or not, I, I don't know. But uh, cognition is, I think, what we ought to be tracking, not not the stuff that we're made of or how we got here.
0: This ability to learn is a great bridge back to planaria. Perhaps we could start talking about some of the history of uh, how how learning and memory has been studied in them, and then and then move up to your more recent work.
1: Yeah, um, well, people have been studying behavior in planaria for well over a hundred years. Uh, a particular milestone was in, um, uh, in the 1960s, the late sixties, when, uh, this guy, James McConnell, uh, discovered that you can, you can train planaria and then cut off their heads and, uh, they will regenerate new heads and then show that they now remember the information. So, so McConnell did some amazing work on, on, on this. Um, he caught a lot of, uh, he caught a lot of flack over it. Lots of people wouldn't believe that that's true. We... Reproduced in 2013, we made an automated device, my my lab made an automated device that uh, took all the human element and the guessing um, out of it and proved that uh, he was absolutely correct, that that they do in fact do that. And uh, there's a tremendous research program uh, going forward that can be done to understand where is the memory, how is it stored, how is it imprinted onto the newly developing brain you know it's a fascinating there now now it's related to work um that uh, was done uh, in the 70s by a, a bunch of uh, russian scientists and then more later more work was done later um by uh, douglas blackiston who actually is a staff scientist here in my uh, in my center who discovered that um through the caterpillar to butterfly or moth transition when the brain is basically taken apart and re- reassembled in, in a new way, again, information persists. So, so trained, uh, you know, the training, um, persists. And so that's just, you know, amazingly interesting. It also raises all kinds of interesting, uh, sort of cognitive philosophical implications where we often in philosophy, one and one they all often tell you to, you know, imagine what's it like to be a butterfly or what's it like to be a caterpillar? Well, that's a basic mm-hmm. question, but the more interesting question is, yeah, what's it like to be a caterpillar? changing into a butterfly in real time right uh-huh. so, so you are actually so it's not just an evolutionary thing it's not just a developmental thing but you are actually an animal whose brain and whose cognitive capacity is totally rewired uh-huh. uh and and changes radically right you, you you used to really care about leaves and eating leaves and what kind of leaf and and now you don't care about leaves at all you want nectar and now you live in a three-dimensional world instead of the two-dimensional world of a caterpillar Mm-hmm. it's an amazing journey you know?
0: and that, that seems like a radically more extreme version of the question like how what what makes you the same person over time yeah. if all of your cells die and are reborn yep yep
1: yeah that's that's exactly right and so and so some people are interested in uh uh memory as a as a marker of continuity so if you share the same memories then you are the same person right and i mean there's a more basic version of it that all of us went through So so we were all children at one point and then you sort of go through puberty and lots of things change, right? Your body changes, your brain changes, there are new hormones. The things you care about change radically uh, and your capacity to have goals and, and, uh, and, and, and various other psychological drives change radically. In what way are you the same person? So I think the closest that anybody can can formulate that is, is well, you have memories, right? There's a memory identity. But that's actually um, tricky because one thing you can do in planaria is you can cut them into pieces and a, a single trained worm with a certain memories can, can give rise to 10 other worms that all have exactly the same memories. And so now where is the individual identity? And so, so I think much like with everything else, this binary question of, are you, or are you not the same, uh, the same, uh, individual? I think that question leads us astray. I don't, I don't think that's the right. I don't think that's the right question.
0: So at some point you lose that ability or, or maybe planarians are unique in, in having this ability to regenerate. Um, but that, that seems like it would be the most adaptive thing you could have to be basically immortal and able to regenerate yourself. So is, is it too simple a question to ask why can't other organisms do that?
1: Um, No, it's a, it's a very good question. Uh, some, some organisms do it to an extent. So salamanders regenerate their limbs, their eyes, their jaws, their spinal cords, uh, portions of their heart and their brain um they're not quite like planaria but 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 very very um regenerative and uh mammals regenerate a little bit so we regenerate our liver deer regenerate their antlers so it really is a very good question as to why um why 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 doesn't everything have this amazing regenerability why are we not like planaria so I, i don't know the answer to that i don't think anybody knows the answer to that but um I could tell, I could try to tell a story that, that may or may not, um, be true. So imagine that you are a, an early mammal, you know, you're, you're kind of a mouse like creature, you're running around the forest. Um, something bites your leg off. Now, unlike a salamander, a couple of things are different. Number one is you don't have buoyancy. So you're going to try to put your weight on it, which means that whatever delicate cells are trying to regenerate at the wound, you're going to immediately grind them into the, into the forest floor. So they're going to get dirty. They're going to get infected. Um, you um, uh, are much better off uh, sealing that wound, scarring, and hoping you survive, rather than uh, leaving it open and trying to regenerate. Another issue is that because you're not aquatic, so so with with only one exception that I know of, all good regenerators are aquatic. And so without that, w- without the 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 water on the outs- on the other side of the wound, you really can't run injury currents very well. So the, all the bioelectrical signals that are normally important to regenerate, you can't run them in dry air, and so, so that's another reason why that, that might be very hard. So I think what uh, what's happened in mammals in particular is that uh, the evolution has sort of uh, gone in favor of let's scar, let's seal the wound, and and and, and do our best that way. But then, of course, there are also species of planaria that don't regenerate very well. And there it's there's a wide variety of uh, different animals that can and can't regenerate. It's uh, yeah, it's un, it's unclear.
0: Why do you think this doesn't apply to brains? I mean, we we have neuroplasticity, uh, but in, in terms of like, if you get a brain lesion, you, you probably won't grow it, regrow it, that area or regain the function.
1: Well, I don't know if it's anything special about brains. The same thing is true of your finger. If you lose your finger, you're not going to regrow your finger. Uh But planaria regrow uh, their brains. Right. Because with
0: limbs, we have this this thing you just talked about where it it can get damaged or infected. So maybe it it never could fully regrow. But you would think that your brain is protected within the confines of your skull. So maybe that's like a safe haven to regrow.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. Uh, I, I don't know. It's possible that that this shift to scarring is a, in a way from regeneration is just global. I mm-hmm. mean, I told a story about limbs, but maybe it's hard to do that in specific regions and not others. And so maybe just everything is like that now in the human body. But like I said, uh, salamanders and planaria regrow, well, planaria regrow their whole brain. Salamanders can regrow portions of their brain. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything specific about the brain that forbids regrowth. But there, there may also be trade-offs, evolutionary trade-offs that we don't know. Also, it may be that this is good enough. Remember that evolution doesn't optimize for you know your happiness or or for you know a high quality of life or anything like that. It optimizes for biomass. So it's good enough. If you can survive this way, then that's a that's a that's a valid solution. Um, I I I I apologize. Uh, Give me thirty seconds. I'll be right back. And hopefully, um, somebody's ringing my doorbell. Hopefully, you can.
0: And we're back. So Mike, with our with our last. 10 to 15 minutes. Um, let's talk about the future of your research and where where you see the field of regenerative medicine and synthetic biology going.
1: Yeah. Um, so, so there's a few things. Uh, one of the things we hope to contribute to is regenerative medicine broadly. So the idea, so, so we work on some specific things like limb regeneration and birth defect repair and uh, cancer reprogramming. Um, I think the future of the field is really, uh, Going to parallel what happened in in computer science. So 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 when I give talks, I often show this picture of what programming looked like in the 40s and 50s, which is you know you see this person sitting in front of this giant uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, electronic thing, and she's plugging the wires in and out, right? So so you you were programming at the hardware level, but um, one of the most am- amazing uh, aspects of, of of computer science that led to this uh, information technology revolution is this idea that if your hardware is good enough and I think biological hardware is definitely good enough, you gain this uh, aspect of reprogrammability, meaning that you can, you can, you can communicate with the device via inputs, via stimuli, not physical rewiring. But, and I think, I think this is the future of regenerative medicine. So, so the future of medicine, the future medical treatments are going to look more like, and, and, um, uh, we've uh, we've we've used this phrase in some of our our writing. It's going to be look like it's going to look like somatic psychiatry. So the idea is not going to be trying to rewire the hardware at the molecular level. It's going to be what stimuli and experiences can you give this collection of cells to convince it to do a or b. So so whether in morphological disorders, whether in physiological disorders. It's going to be more about communicating with the um, collective intelligence of the cells and try to nudge it into particular uh, regions of, of, of the, of the um, uh, space in which it works and uh, t- as much as possible, taking advantage of its native competencies. So you don't want micromanagement. You want uh, to be resetting goals and taking advantage of its innate intelligence. So I, I think that's going to be so, so tissue training um, regimes and things like that. I think are the future of regenerative medicine.
0: So is gene editing analogous to the hardware editing? And then this is something more like manipulating epigenetics.
1: Um, I'll agree with the first part, which is that, yeah, genome editing changes the hardware. So, So what the genome does is it tells every cell what molecular hardware it gets to have. So it's sort of the equivalent of saying, um, this particular type of uh junction between elements we're going to change its properties so you can imagine how hard it is to to program that way right and so to 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 control a complex computational device that way so i think i think uh certain low-hanging fruit single gene diseases and some things like that will be solved by genome editing but that's it after that it's it's going to very quickly run into a brick wall when uh it's completely unclear how to which genes need to be edited and how to make large scale uh, large-scale anatomical changes. Um, the epigenetics, I think. I think uh, people people have a lot. Uh, p- people put a lot on epigenetics than I think is warranted. So, so traditional, d- d- the modern understanding of epigenetics is things like chromatin modification. So, functionally all that is is another way to turn genes on and off. So there's no more magic to it than that. So in the end, it's, it's still, that, that aspect of it, chromatin modification is still single cell level um, kinds of uh, phenotypes by turning genes on and off. So I think that's very limited. Uh, you know, there, There's certain great things you can do with that, but, but it's not a, it's not a, um, a broad answer um, to these things. On the other hand, the original meaning of epigenetics was anything that's not genetic. And so from that perspective, yeah, there are types of epigenetics, for example, bioelectrical uh, kinds of uh, circuits that are not genetic, but they're not what people typically mean when they say epigenetics. Typically, they mean, you know, sort of chromatin remodeling and things like that. And that, that I don't think is radically different than, than the standard genetic approaches.
0: So is this going to be a bottom-up approach where by seeing how, like, let's say some sort of bioelectric stimulus changes a single type of cell? in one organism, then you can kind of move up the complexity ladder and hope that it generalizes and then maybe up to humans eventually?
1: No, I think, I think it's, I think it's exactly the opposite direction, which is that the bioelectric code is not, these are not single cell properties. So the idea is that, uh, it's very much like the way electricity is used in, let's say neural networks, whether artificial or, or, or biological to store, memories, to implement behavioral repertoires, and to uh, implement intelligence. And so the idea is going to be to understand how all cells at, at whatever, whether human or not, that, that doesn't matter. These things are extremely highly conserved. So, and to understand how all cells implement uh, intelligent, uh, some degree of competency in in goal-directed behavior in their electrical signaling and learn to read and write those patterns to take advantage of it, to, to, to hack into the native, uh, competencies of the tissue to get, uh, uh either, either restoration of, of native patterns. So anatomical repair, or in fact, make new patterns. So, you know, um, biorobotics, uh, synthetic living machines, those kinds of things. And it's not going to be done bottom up. I don't, I don't believe uh, it's going to be done bottom up. I think that, um, the much more interesting and powerful way to do it is top down is to ask, how does the system natively represent information? What, how does it uh, store its goals? How does it pursue those goals? And now what kind of stimuli could we, how do we communicate with it, literally communicate with it to re, um, re, re-specify those goals and, and take advantage of its native
0: competencies? So modern neural nets are can do amazing things, but they're kind of a black box. Like we don't know exactly how they program themselves to get to the outcome. Do you see the future of synthetic biology kind of similar to that, where maybe we can create very complex cognitive uh, machines, but we don't know exactly how they're working?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point. Uh, one of the, I, I forget which one, but one of the, um, maybe it was Bohr or somebody, one of the uh, sort of f- fathers of modern physics had said that everything is understandable, but we can't make any assumptions on what understanding actually means. Meaning that for certain systems, mm-hmm. understand might be not not the same as uh, which which it makes perfect sense to me that I'm not sure why we necessarily expect that the same cognitive tools that we use to understand simple uh, simple systems in an everyday world, which is where our, how our cognitive systems evolve, right? Um, why those same uh, kind of conceptual tools would be suitable to understand every phenomenon in the universe, including, for example, intelligent behavior of networks. Doesn't seem like that's a requirement at all. And so um, it may well be that we have to have different uh, notions of what it means to understand certain certain phenomena, especially highly emergent phenomena. The whole point of strong emergence is that you can understand the behavior of individual subunits in a way that, uh, there's a there's a discrete uh, kind of um uh transition to a new kind of behavior and when you say you understand it all you all what you really mean is that you understand the parts and you can specify what's going to happen and when but that's it and so um i think it's i think it's entirely possible that that's where we end with uh, that there is no understanding to be gained of these of these neural networks in the same way that we understand much much simpler phenomena but but i'm not but i don't know that i don't know that that's true i just think it's a it's a perfectly good possibility that it may not be because of our ignorance it may be fundamentally that they require a different notion of understanding the same thing mm-hmm. i mean that that to some extent is true of biological networks too meaning that we 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 do not uh, we we do not have a mature uh, science of reading and writing information in, in and out of the brain so if i were to look at your brain i would have very very limited uh information on what you know and what your goals are and all of that but you know a lot of it you don't know all of it so so internal access privileged access is not perfect by any means we are often uh very much misled about our own abilities and and, and goals and so on But nevertheless, uh, you know a lot about what you know and and internally, right? So there's some kind of, there's some kind of interesting magic about uh, this kind of system having internal metacognitive access that uh, looking at it from the outside, we still are not able to do so. I, you know, I, I think, I think this question of what can we really understand as, as outsiders without being the system itself. Right. And so, 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 so maybe the only way to gain perfect understanding of the cognitive capacities of a network is to be that agent. It is is to be that network. It may not be possible to do it from the outside.
0: This has been incredibly stimulating, Mike. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much for your time.
1: Yeah. Much appreciated. Thank you.